Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll ask Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Pat Toomey about some legislation he's sponsoring in response to the Parkland School shooting in Florida. We'll learn from a local woman about the use of mediation in tense work and school situations. And we'll hear from a veteran of the Washington, D.C. scene about some ways the average citizen might work to make improvements to our entrenched government structure. Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Pat Toomey is hoping some legislation he and his colleagues worked on in the aftermath of the Sandy Hook school shooting has a chance for passage in the aftermath of the deadly rampage in Parkland, Florida. Toomey, a Republican, and his Democratic colleague Joe Manchin wrote a bill to expand background checks on gun sales across the country. And that proposal may get a second look. When we spoke to Senator Toomey this week, he discussed that legislation as well as comments by President Donald Trump at a recent meeting that accused Pennsylvania's junior senator of being beholden to the NRA. Well, I think we have another shot at this. Uh, President Trump uh, has indicated uh, he was very supportive of um, what Senator Manchin and I uh, had tried to do, which, as you know, is just to have background checks at uh, when, whenever there are commercial sales. So in, under Pennsylvania law, we already require a background check on every single sale of a handgun. And there are no exceptions, whether it's at a gun show or between friends or whoever it might be. The law requires that. My legislation doesn't extend that far, but we do. We would require background checks for commercial sales, which we would consider sales at gun shows or over the Internet to be such sales. And so in Pennsylvania, that would bring in long gun purchases in those venues and just require a background check. That's all. And, um, you know, I, I'm a big Second Amendment supporter, Sue. I'm a gun owner. I'm a member of the Rod and Gun Club. Take my son shooting. And the Second Amendment is very, very important to me. I just don't see a contradiction between the Second Amendment and a background check to try to make it more difficult for people who have no right to the Second Amendment because they're a violent criminal or they're dangerously mentally ill. Those people, we should make it as hard as possible for them to ever obtain a firearm. So the president indicated a lot of support for this. Uh, if he sticks to that, then I think we've got a, a shot at it. Were you surprised, and maybe we're taking this out of uh, context, where the president uh, said during that meeting that you're afraid of the NRA. Did you? Well, how, did <laughs> yeah, that, was, how did that happen? Yeah, well, so the president doesn't know the history of Manchin Toomey, and, and I don't expect him to be a 
Senate historian. I, you know, I get it. Although, if you don't know the history, it's better not to make an accusation about that history. Uh, you know, at the time we were offering Mansion to me, uh, there was there was really no discussion. There was no debate. Uh, the idea of changing the legal age for purchasing a long gun wasn't on anybody's radar. And I explained to the president at our meeting why I'm not convinced that that's a good idea. I'm, uh, you know, the vast majority of 18, 19, and 20-year-olds, they buy rifles and shotguns because they want to go hunting or target shooting, and they are not a threat to anyone. And so to ban that whole category of Americans, who, by the way, they can go out and serve our country. I mean, think of the irony of this. 18 years old, somebody signs up, joins the Marines, spends two years risking his life up higher, using a, a firearms to defend himself and defend all of us, finishes his two-year stint, comes back at 20, and we're going to tell him, sorry, you're not eligible to buy a firearm in America. Boy, that's that's a hard that's that's a hard sell to me. So anyway, um, you know the president does occasionally, uh, uh, you know, make make some comments that uh, I I certainly don't always agree with. But the important thing here is he seems to have embraced the bipartisan effort that Joe Manchin and I introduced several years ago to have these background checks on commercial sales, and the president can be helpful if he chooses to, to get us the support we need to get this accomplished. What about uh, the the bump stock ban? We know that that was discussed last week, and unfortunately that mostly led to the sale, the sale of more bump stocks. Uh, but well, how, yes. how do you see that? So the here's my view. We have had a many decades-long consensus that fully automatic guns, in other words, machine guns, those we're going to restrict severely because of the really uh, you know, tremendous lethality that those guns are, are capable of. So we have, for a very long time, made it extremely difficult for anyone to get a fully automatic weapon. Well, so the bump stock comes along, and it's a relatively simple but very clever device that has the effect of turning a semi-automatic gun, which is the one that fires a bullet every time you pull the trigger, but only one bullet at a time. And so the speed at which bullets can come out of it is a function of how quickly you can pull the trigger. It, it could be a lot, but it's much, much slower than a fully automatic gun. Well, the, the bump stock converts the semi-automatic one-shot-per-pull gun into the equivalent of a fully automatic machine gun in, in an operational sense. So, look, if one is effectively banned, I think the other should be effectively banned. We could do it through legislation. I'd be okay with that. We can also probably do it with regulation. I think the their existing law gives enough authority to the ATF that they could, uh, you know, prescribe these regulations. But either way, uh, I I think it's perfectly reasonable to uh, to put the same kind of restrictions on bump stocks that we have on fully automatic machine guns. How do you see uh, the situation with our schools in America in order to make them? I, I guess universally safer so that every school everywhere is uh, somehow hardened or fortified and uh, it doesn't look like a soft target anymore because that seems to be one of the reasons why these uh, shooters are picking schools because they know they can get into them and they know they can do damage. Right. So what can we do, Pat, in uh, either a legislative or a common sense way in order to fortify them better? It's going to vary from school to school. It's going to very regionally. It's going to be, you know, a, a very urban school might have different 
criteria than a very rural school, for instance. So I, I don't think we want to have a single one-size-fits-all solution, but I do think we probably need to to harden the target, as you say. You know, So that would mean limiting entrances and exits. It would mean uh, maybe you have to have some kind of mechanism for deciding uh, automatically limiting who can get into the building, whether it's a uh, card key or some other device that allows a person to go through. We might need more metal detectors uh, if we're going to do this, and it's a shame, right, that we have to do this in our schools, especially since the vast majority of them will never have any such experience. Uh, I also think that there is a role to have armed security personnel somewhere on the campus um, for whatever the reason, the breakdown that appeared to occur in Parkland as a general matter, armed security personnel are going to provide more security, not less. Um, that's something that some schools um, are certainly going to want to pursue. I think it's going to be a combination that will vary from uh, school to school and certainly from district to district. How about uh, the, the possibility of arming teachers and others in schools? We know that some schools have the school resource officer, and we know that in in Florida there there were officers there, which is just a... That's a shame and a tragedy, but is is there something else that needs to be looked at? Because we've heard um, some who say that's great and other people who say that that is a huge liability issue to arm people in our schools who might accidentally kill the wrong person. Yeah, well, again, I think we've got to be very, very careful, and this uh, the same circumstances won't prevail everywhere. I think it, it depends on the circumstances. Uh, the vast majority of teachers are never going to be armed, don't want to be armed, aren't trained to be armed, and that's fine. Um, are there some teachers who are ex-military, very well-trained, completely competent with the firearm? Maybe they're ex-horsemen, in fact. And having them armed would be advantageous. It, you know, schools have a lot of personnel who are not teachers, and maybe there's a security component there. So. Uh, I do think that in many cases, some kind of armed security capability is uh, is going to be helpful. What What do you think will happen, though? I mean, there's all these ideas out there, but what do you think is the What do you think is um, reasonable and fair? Because you know, Pat, this this gun issue is a wedge issue, and, and it, it divides people terribly. I know you've teamed up with uh, Joe Manchin, who is a Democrat, and you're trying to do something. But what do you think is the the thing or the things that we can do that actually will pass? All right. So the things we can do that actually have a chance to pass. One is the legislation that I'm introducing today with Chris Coons, uh, my Democratic colleague from Delaware which is a very modest bill, but it's helpful, and that is let's do a better job of enforcing the laws that are already on the books. So, for instance, it's a felony for somebody who has a criminal history, who's a a convicted felon, to apply to purchase a gun and deny their criminal history on the form. You know what? It happens every single day, and it happens every day, and it's almost never prosecuted. So we've got a bill that says, well, it's very simple, it says when the federal government does the background check for a state, which it does for the vast majority of states, and somebody commits this crime of denying their criminal history in an attempt to buy a gun that they're not supposed to be able to buy, then the federal government will notify the law enforcement leadership of that state. 
so that the state can then decide whether or not they want to prosecute this person. When you think about it, it's a, it's, I, I think it's a very constructive step because someone who has that criminal background and then commits this additional crime of attempting to get a firearm and lying about their criminal background, committing yet another felony, they're probably back to their criminal ways. And so this gives the state law enforcement a tool. It gives them the information to go ahead and certainly monitor that person, arrest them if they choose, prosecute. It doesn't mandate that the states actually prosecute these people for these crimes, but it makes it possible to prosecute these people. Uh, That is a modest step in the right direction of better enforcement of existing law. I think that can pass. We have bipartisan support. I have several Republican senators who are co-sponsors, a number of Democrats. It's a small step. It's an example of the kind of thing that I really do think we can pass. I think we could pass legislation that would forbid terrorists who are on a no-fly list from being able to buy a firearm. I think that's a no-brainer, and we ought to be able to get that done. I think there's a chance that my legislation with Senator Manchin that would broaden background checks to apply at commercial venues uh, where they don't apply today, have that background check take place. I think that's that's got a real shot. But I do, and, and I've it's a long answer, Sue. I apologize. But I, I want to say none of these individually nor the sum of all of these bills, if signed into law, none of them guarantee an end to these horrendous massacres because at the end of the day, it's a serious mental health problem, and a determined person can find a way to get a gun even with all these obstacles. I think all these obstacles should be in the way. We should make it as hard as possible. That's why I support the policy. But we've got to better understand what goes wrong in the minds of these young men that they decide they're going to go and massacre uh, these, you know, huge numbers of completely innocent and vulnerable people. And by the way, they're usually on a suicide mission. The shooter in Parkland apparently was not, but usually it ends with the shooter killing himself before the police get there. It's a very, very uh, horrifying madness that these people descend into, and we're not really going to solve this problem until we understand how to identify it early and do something about it. Yeah, and in the case of this uh, Parkland shooter, he seemed to be on just about everybody's radar, and it's almost unbelievable that he somehow wasn't uh, sidelined in the process, but I I guess that's just the way it is. Well, we, we need to understand that better. Clearly, there were multiple breakdowns. You're absolutely right. All the warnings were there. People in the community did exactly what they've been asked to do, right? If you see something, say something. Well, they were saying very specifically that this boy is badly disturbed. He has got guns. He is going to try to kill people, probably at his school. I mean, they spelled it out. They knew what was coming, and yet... Uh, the appropriate steps weren't taken. So we absolutely have to uh, understand what went wrong there and try to prevent that from happening again. And uh, we're kind of running out of time, but in a a short answer kind of way, Pat, can you talk about uh, the efficacy so far of the tax cuts? Oh, it's been fantastic. We are now over 4 million Americans working for over 400 companies that have received pay raises, bonuses, contributions to their pension plans, or some combination of those things directly attributable to the tax cut. Millions and millions of Americans have seen an increase in their take-home pay because the withholding has gone down because they owe less in taxes. 
That's been terrific. And I'm very confident the best is yet to come as businesses take advantage of the incentives to invest more in their business, invest more in their employees, and grow. It's going to create more demand for workers, more job opportunities, and upward pressure on wages. That's Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey, who spoke to us this week on a variety of issues in Washington. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. The spate of school shootings in the country is being addressed on a number of levels. Lawmakers are looking at realistic ways to potentially change gun laws. There is an increased discussion about mental health. Some are looking at the influence of social media and even video games. A Luzerne County woman also has ideas she believes should be considered. Baroness Julianne von Schmeling has been a mediator and conflict coach since 2006. She has the desire to work with educators and administrators on the concept of resolving disputes in a respectful and proactive manner. She shared her thoughts with us this week. I was a can say a victim of the of the legal system myself with my daughter going through a horrendous divorce custody matter that lasted actually twenty years. But seven years into it, I um I realized I needed to go to law school to defend myself. I was absolutely broke, and I couldn't, you know, it, it was just a horrendous battle that would never end. So I went to law school, and during those years, I I learned a lot there, but I also learned that there was another way of dealing with conflict anywhere. And so I started focusing on an alternative way of resolving conflict rather than litigation, and... Um, and then after graduating from law school, I still have my business um, ad agency and business consulting firm, and um, I still have it to this day, but my, my focus has shifted into the mediation practice at the Baroness, and um, I just simply found that mediation is just so much more effective and quicker, and any conflict involves emotions and people. And it's human nature, and all the paperwork is 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 just inflates the the conflict and the dispute and the hostility and things. But in in mediation, you have the ability to address the issues face to face. And so many cases, it's actually not about what's on the paper. It's about something else that that's much deeper much deeper. And in mediation, because all parties have can speak, voice their, their opinions and voice their concerns, the issues can actually be resolved. And oftentimes mediation is misunderstood as, oh, it has to be amicable and everybody has to agree and it's not legally enforceable. And those myths, unfortunately, are being carried on still to this day. And that's something I'm constantly battling. But there's nothing further from the truth. You In mediation, you can resolve things and then they're legally enforceable. And that's in the, in the divorce arena as well as the um, corporate arena. And in schools, of course, it, it would have a little bit of different application, but we also do workplace mediation and peer mediation where, you know, the resolution in the end doesn't need to be legally enforceable. It just needs to be happening. When you go into a situation like that, are you met with trepidation, but then they kind of warm up to you when they, they realize that they can maybe work through an issue that is beneficial to most well, we have to understand, too, that in order to resolve conflict, we have to go through. 
in a lot of companies and a lot of schools, we're looking at people trying to resolve the issues by by sort of negating the, the problems, by taming people, by calming them down and things like that. But it doesn't resolve the, the core issue, the actual conflict. In order to get to get to a positive resolution, a long-lasting win-win resolution, you have to go through the conflict. Everything that is a problem has to be brought up and resolved individually and together in order to, to make this long-lasting and effective. And that is what mediation is. When you look at some of these situations uh, across the country involving these very tragic school shootings, I know that you have some ideas. Does does the uh, the concept of mediation, is that at play in some schools in the country, either on the, uh, you know, the, the high school level or the collegiate level? Do you, do you see people actually war- kind of warming up to the idea of what you do? Yes. As a matter of fact, in other parts of the country, it's, it's, it's already a, a, a viable part of, of education. As a matter of fact, one of my friends, an actual mentor, Kate Odding in, in Arizona, her phone has been ringing off the hook ever since the Florida shooting. She, as I do, facilitates, mediates, and conflict coaches, and then sets up programs in the schools. And it, and and it's um, it it's as much needed in high schools, middle schools, as in colleges, really, because you're dealing with with young people who are truly ill-equipped to deal with with conflict, to deal with emotions, particularly with the feeling of rejection, which has been so. I mean, the internet has not been helpful in this whole thing and we can go into more detail on that obviously this mediation should this be a skill set that is taught to high school peers uh, some of the students perhaps that are um, in involved in student government student council clubs organizations groups to recognize who in the setting is experiencing um, rejection and alienation? We're basically running this parallel. We're looking at um, teaching conflict resolution and and, and everything about conflict, but at the same time as a mediator, we come in and we deal with with the individuals as well, doing what I would refer to as a conflict audit. So we want to set up programs for uh, teaching students peer mediation themselves but at the same time which is right now needed even more is um, for us to come in and and deal with what what's there at this moment what issues are there at this moment and you have to understand too the administrators guidance counselors principals are are sort of restricted of what they can do and how effective they can be because for starters they're not necessarily trusted as somebody that they can confide that the students can confide in because everything at some point goes into their student file if if they're if they're problems and same with the guidance counselors and so on but as a mediator we come in there we do our work everything what was told to us in, in in confidence leaves with us that all the details leave we just simply work in there and and facilitate a resolution, facilitate a trust setting, facilitate that they can understand that they can speak in confidence. 
and which which now kids are so apprehensive of this because of the social media. You have no more private expectation of privacy anywhere. Girlfriends hanging out. One, I mean, they have to be dressed and and made up properly because one of their friends might just shoot a a Snapchat and hear their bad hairdo is all over the place. I mean, we have zero expectation of privacy anymore. As a mediator, that's one of the first things we instill in all the students, that whatever they say to us remains confidential, which also fosters that students that see something that's off feel compelled to actually say something. I mean, the the shooting at, at Weiss Market, there, there were signs everywhere, but nobody had the courage or the empathy or whatever to to do something about it. And in Florida, it was very, very similar. I mean, that was just beyond tragic. But a lot of things there, a lot of things that happened could have been averted by students learning empathy, learning courage, and also for the the shooter himself, he could have used some reality check training in terms of the um, video gaming that you know I, I see that's that's another thing I'm like very frustrated with when I when I see it. The um, reality and virtual reality, the lines have have been become so blurred. That is one of my fears for the future, by the way, is that people will not at some point be able to tell the difference between what's real and what's not. Yes. And I think we're starting to slip into that. Talk about that reality. The reality check. What is what is that, and how does it work? Reality check is basically that you you take kids that um, are addicted or play way too much video games into a hospital or show them somebody after an accident. Of you know they're they're so used to going nuts with their with their games and blowing up anything and everybody and objects that look like people, and then when they're done with that or reach a level or got killed. They hit the reset button. Okay, that's how life starts to work for them. There is no reset button. And I I remember seeing that Florida um, arrest and his lawyer shortly after said, oh, he's sorry now. He's, he's remorseful. I'm like, that's exactly it. No sense of, of reality of what that would do. Yes, he would get his aggression and his anger out, but there was no do-over. And in, in schools even nowadays, we have... We have so many um, applications of that do-over, of everybody getting praised, everybody getting a trophy, all these kind of things that the accountability is kind of gone, but also the reality check to me is teach students what happens when when you're doing something in real life. You know what I mean? And then the other thing is I think it's very important, and even the adults have kind of forgotten about this, we cannot apply what, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas anymore to the internet. It's just not there. Snapchat is not secret. It doesn't disappear after you send it. Um, Anything and everything that was ever posted to the internet, no matter what platform, is there for eternity. And the the worst part is privacy of, of young people it's just has been destroyed. I mean, there's a private chat between two people and they're mad about something and they're upset about something. So they're they're very frank. And next thing you know, they get mad at each other 
And one of them screenshots these conversations and now sends them wherever they want, even posts them. But that's an invasion of privacy, which is a gigantic issue, but nobody respects that or understands that anymore. And those kind of things need to be taught in a separate curriculum in the schools. Julianne von Schmeling is her name, and she does practice locally. She became interested in mediation, and she believes that the the administration of schools could benefit greatly from this type of education on how to resolve conflict, right? Yes, exactly. Okay, so uh, outline how you think that would work with them. Yes. Um, I'm I'm simply thinking it it's time. There's we know now that no school is immune from from these potential massacres. And I think it's a opportunity but also a duty of school administrators, principals, superintendents to become proactive. We're all aware that the gun industry or the gun laws are not going to change anytime soon, even though there are some, as you mentioned last week, there are some private companies that have taken a you know, ag- aggressive step in the direction. And we also know that mental health and, and the vetting process is, is going to be a slow process of getting, getting that better. And the suggestions from, from some to bring in vets into into the schools, you know, after they retire in their 40s, fully trained, uh, another option. And But we also know that the, um, and that's going to take time. And, and another another issue is that um, healthcare there's just not enough funding and and the, and the HIPAA laws have made it extremely difficult to to cut through red tape that I feel that a more urgent need is there to protect our children whether they're in kindergarten or in a college already by resolving the actual issue at their root go in and that's where mediation and conflict coaching and and setting up programs comes in. It's completely viable. It's inexpensive in comparison to other things. And it's extremely effective, but it resolves the issues right at their core. Like, who is mad at whom? Why are they? And and kicking kids out of school, obviously, is not helpful. Because number one, we lose track of them. And number two, they continue on a path that we can't control and they're not getting help and they will never get better. So to set up programs in, in the schools, I think to me is is urgent and needs to be done rather yesterday than tomorrow. And there are trained people out there that are able to do this. And we're all over the country. We're all passionate. We're all trained, experienced, educated, and know how to not know how to help. I mean, the first thing is we come in and we assess really what's going on in a particular case. And you have cultural conflicts. You have... Um, clicks, you have low discipline, high drug use, all those kind of things that play into it. But every school is different. Every setting is different. So there is no um, size, one size fits all. That's for sure. So you need a, a person that's that's trained. And that person is also capable then of training the people that are in the schools to set up these programs that there that there's some longevity and that it resolves these issues for the future and eliminates the actual problem before it becomes the actual issue before it becomes a problem. I think that's that's where we're missing out right now and it's being done across the country already and I'm hoping that we can introduce that in this area and I'm hoping that I find some open ears and um, administrators that are willing to talk to 
to me and my colleagues. Even in a, a setting where you might come in at the uh, behest of like a PTA or something to give mm-hmm. a presentation to parents. Yes, because that may be very helpful as well, where you'd come in uh, at night and it wasn't mandatory, but you could just mm-hmm. say to people, here's some things that you may be able to do to de-escalate conflict. Right. And we have to teach children and their parents and the teachers what conflict really is. We're a very conflict-driven culture to begin with. I mean, we know that media thrives on conflict, so does um, so do sports. And we, we have to learn that conflict can be good, but in many cases it's bad. All right. If people want to reach out to you, how can they do it? Well, I have two websites, um, ScrantonMediation.com and TheBaroness.biz. And biz is important. (laughs) Yes, you may go to another site if you don't put the B-I-Z in, if you know what we're saying. So we just want you to be aware. But it's really great to talk to you about this kind of issue. I think it's important. And I think that sometimes we overthink everything, but we need to get back down to some of the things that have worked very well in the past while, you know, looking at the modern world at the same time. It's like that duality that we need to solve in the middle to get people to have less conflict. So thank you very much for agreeing to come in today and offering to talk about this. I think it's fantastic. Thank you, Sue, um, for giving me the opportunity to to let our listeners know that that there are other options. Baroness Julianne von Schmeling of Luzerne County spoke to us about mediation and conflict resolution in light of the school shooting in Parkland, Florida. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Those who have spent some serious time in Washington, D.C., are expressing frustration with its entrenched culture, narrowed power, and overwhelming influence driven by big money donors. Former Chief Assistant for Domestic Affairs in the Johnson administration and Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare during the Carter presidency, Joseph Califano Jr., joined us recently to express his exasperation at both sides of the aisle. He's the author of a new book, Our Damaged Democracy, We the People Must Act. We have a lot of problems. Our democracy is damaged. Uh, We have problems. There's a colossal concentration of power in the president which makes him power over the other branches. Congress is crippled. They really can't seem to get anything done, and and the courts are becoming politicized. But if our people understand these problems, we'll deal with them. And that's why I wrote the book. I want our people to understand what the problems are in Washington. is isn't any one president or any one Congress or any one Supreme Court. It's been building for, uh, oh, I guess half a century. Uh, The book is really... Here's the problems, now let's deal with them. We, the people, can and must deal with them. Now, uh, you were in um, the uh, the Johnson uh, White House, right? Can Absolutely. You, can you explain what you think, what, what happened since then? Like, what has happened to well, make the institution so damaged? Well, let me, let me give you an example, a couple of quick examples. 
war. Uh, Congress has the exclusive power to wage war under the Constitution. Yet over the last 50 years, presidents, every president has sent troops into combat, Americans, millions of them. Millions have been wounded, 100,000 killed. There's never been a declaration of war. The White House staff, uh, when I was in the Johnson administration, we were about, the total staff was about 50 people, everybody. And uh, today, the White House staff approaches 2,000 people. Uh, there are, and, and, and there's a, uh, you know, there's a, there, there are 400 people in communications at least. We have we have a state-run media. Uh, we we have WhiteHouse.gov. We have White House YouTube. Uh, we have uh, White House Internet. White House Interactive Internet. All of these running 24 hours a day to burnish the uh, president and his programs. Uh, you know, that's more like a monarchy or a dictatorship than it is like a democracy. Just imagine you're in the communications world, or you know, all your life and think about what what that means so we we can deal with these we have to trim back the power of the president we have to say to congress get to work get stop spending all your time raising money for for a senator on average to run for re-election in 2016 had to raise thirty thousand dollars a week for every week of his six-year term house member fifteen thousand dollars a week for every week of his or her term so we we, we we gotta we gotta tell the congress you know we, we we're paying you to work we're paying you to look at these problems we're paying you to whatever the solution is you're paying you to help make our schools safer deal with the gun problem deal with the immigration problem my god we've had an immigration problem for a decade nobody's dealt with it uh, so it's we can do it. We just have to get the message to our people and probably get some new blood. I think in, in this coming election we'll see some new blood. I, I happen to think we'll see a lot of women coming into the Congress uh, in this election. What about, uh, I, I know we bring this up periodically and people always say, oh, that's for the voters to take care of. But what about term limits? Well, you know, I think, look, I, I, I think... There are pluses to term limits, but they need to be long enough. Voters, in some cases, do seem to take care of term limits. You look at the senator from uh, California, Diane Feinstein, uh, five six-year terms, and the Democratic Party organization, at least, uh, voted for another candidate this time. Uh, they have to be long enough. In the House, for example, the Republicans have term limits on who's going to be a committee chair. And they give a committee chair three terms. That's really not enough. It's so complex to chair the House Ways and Means Committee that deals with all the taxes and all the Medicare and, and all the banks and insurance companies. I think, uh, I think you probably need to maybe go to five-year terms so that you have 10 years. But I, I, I have no problem with term limits. We do need fresh blood. There's no question about it. We, we need new energetic people. But... You know, one of the things we have to do uh, is we have to get the money out of politics. The candidates and the, the members of Congress spend so much time raising money. And the Supreme Court gave money First Amendment rights. Uh, they really started to do it about 20 years ago, but they, they clinched it with the so-called Citizens United opinion. I think there's enough information now about the co corruption of money uh, the soft corruption as well as the hard corruption for Congress, for the court to uh, reverse that decision. They've reversed decisions. They reversed the decision in segregated schools. That they, They've done a lot of things. Who do you think would, it, looking around and from your experience in Washington, who makes a good candidate 
for Congress, in your opinion? Who are the people that you've seen over the years that have what it takes to get the job done? Well, I, I, don't, want to st- I don't want to start identifying people because it changes over their time. I think we need someone who is, has character, and, and you have to look at the whole person. One of the problems with our democracy, one of the damage to it, we have a world of single-issue candidates. A billionaire comes along and says, all right, Mr. or Madam Congressman, you stay with me. I'm pro-choice, or I'm pro-life, or I'm pro-gun control, or I'm anti-gun control, or I'm pro-legalizing marijuana or against it. Just stay with me on that issue, and I will give you millions of dollars. We have too many people in Congress that have done that. Uh, That's one thing. The second thing that really is affecting the quality of people and their and their unwillingness to compromise or make a deal or get something done is gerrymandering. You know, you carve out a district. The Republicans are always going to win. You carve out another district. The Democrats are always going to win. You're going through this in Pennsylvania. And so the election is the primary. That's when the candidate's selected. And in the Republican Party, it pushes the, the candidates to the right edges of their party. And, and in the Democratic Party, it pushes them to the left edges. And they come to Washington, and they've committed on the far right or the far left to take this position or take that position. And they won't give. And what have they done? They've made compromise a four-letter word. They, 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 they've, they've really made it difficult, impossible in many cases, to just compromise because of these commitments they made. So we need somebody that, that we can look at, look at the whole person. This is somebody of character. Nobody knows what the Congress is going to deal with. Are they going to have to deal with uh, a greater war in the Middle East? How are they going to have to vote on, on issues relating to Russia or cybersecurity or building up? Or, or what are they going to do about Why won't they get together on immigration? What are they going to do about the fact that we still have millions and millions of poor people in the richest country in the world. What are they going to do about some of the concentrations of power? That look, look at the larger person. Look at, and I say also, in many cases, vote your gut. You know, you know, you, you've, you've, uh, you've, you've been in, in the entertainment world and you come across lots and lots of people. You know, and you get a feeling, you say, boy, that gal... That guy, she's got it, or he's got it. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's straight talking. Uh, I think he'll be there on the tough ones. He'll try and figure out what the right thing to do is. Excellent. Now you did talk in the beginning about the power of the presidency, and then you talked about Joseph, the enormous amount of people in the White House, the staff. How many of the decisions do you believe are under the jurisdiction of President Trump, and how many things do you think have been farmed out to other people? How do you see this presidency? Well, this this presidency and the, most of the ones for the last couple, uh, the reality is, is take foreign policy. You have a National Security Council staff in the White House of over 400 people. The State Department is not making policy decisions. The policy decisions are being made in the White House by General McMaster and, and by the president. And, you know, the Secretary of State is constantly traveling. I mean, you know, Hillary Clinton, when she was secretary, logged a million miles. Kerry logged a million miles. I think our current secretary is going to log a million miles. And, and e- even with respect to uh, the council's office, uh, decisions are made in the White House. You know, 
when when uh, uh, President uh, Obama uh, went into Libya, he went to his Attorney General Eric Holder and he said, "Is this the kind of situation where, under the law, I have to either report to Congress or end hostilities in 60 days?" And Holder said, "Yes, it is. You have to do that." So he went to his White House counsel. Staff, it used to be one or two lawyers. Now it's about 30 or 40 lawyers, probably more with Trump. And Obama went to the White House counsel and said, no, you don't have to do it. And that was the answer he wanted, and that was the one he followed. When the White House staff is this big and this powerful, it overwhelms the executive branch. It gets harder. You know, we, 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 we see all the stories about Trump cabinet officers not able to get any assistant secretaries or get them confirmed or get them cleared or get them up to the to the Congress. Well, part of that problem is when you say to somebody, oh, I'd like to be the assistant secretary in, in health and human services for Medicare. Or, and they say, well, wait a minute, what am I going to have to say about it? And then you say, well, you know, there are 20 people in the White House or whatever the number is today that really oversee the department, and they'll probably call the big ones. On Medicare, it's hard to get good people. But in addition to which, the media yeah. makes you know this world of uh, of uh, of, of uh, the internet, which you can say anything about anyone, and you know if it goes viral, you can catch up with it if it's false. But do you really ever catch up with it? Uh, and that that uh, that scares the hell out of potential candidates. And lastly, I'd say this. We want a candidate who's going to say, what can I do for my district? What can I do for my state to make it better, to help the people? That should be their first question. What is the first question today? It's how can I raise the money to run? And you'll have the Republican political leaders and the Democratic leaders saying, how are you going to raise the money if you run? Where are you going to get the money from? How are you going to raise it? That's not the world we want to live in. Well, even and we can change it. How? How do you? Well, you say get the money out of it, and and some people are saying the money will somehow get in there. There will be some sort of influencers who still have the ability to get to elected officials. What's well, that? you make you make a good point, but I would say two things. If the Supreme Court would reverse its decision, in in its decision, they said, you know, we're now in a day when everybody knows who's been contributing, so it's all out in the open. That was one of their rationales for giving money First Amendment rights. But the reality is that's not true. They were wrong about that. As a result of their decision, we now have something in politics called dark money, where I can contribute to your campaign, and nobody will know it's me. I can do it through a couple of, of, of you know, fronts, so to speak. I think, one, we have technology. You know, when you buy something on Amazon, and Amazon knows knows that you like that kind of shoe or this is the kind of book you read or but you know we can within and they know within a minute we we can within minutes of the of the time money is contributed to a candidate make it public put it online we have the technology to require that and and and, and the court has got to give congress the freedom to pass a law to do that and then they've got to do it that'll have a big impact i also think it that, you know it's it's a farce we say well under the law, you can only give, you and your wife or you and your husband can only give $5,400 to a candidate in, a, in an election cycle. That's nonsense. How, does, how, do, how do people give a half a million to Hillary or a half a million to Trump? Well, they can also give 10000 to every state, Democratic or Republican committee, and that, and that committee can then turn it over to the president. We've got to clean that up. You know, that, that's, uh, that's the sewer that really uh, needs to be swept out. 
uh, not, uh, I, and, and, and there seems to be no indication this president wants to do that. Or, I, but I, but look, we can deal with it. We 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 can, you know. You reach a point where people finally say, enough. You may or may not agree with what happened in the Italian election, but what it really represents is people saying, enough. We're getting too much control from the European Union. We don't want it. It just shocked the country. Angela Merkel in Germany was shocked. She she barely patched together a, a, a government. You know, our elected officials need that kind of a shock. And that shock can only come in this democracy from we the people. That's why I say we the people must act. We must vote. We must vote in primaries. We must make our views known. And, 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 and I believe the American people, the whole point of this book is here are the problems now. Come on. Every time we've had these problems, whatever they are, you voters, you citizens, you have figured out how to deal with it, how to get around it. You know, we never have a civil rights bill. We never deal with that problem. Well, we had three civil rights bills during the Johnson administration. Roosevelt said, oh, I can't go for Medicare. Uh, it's too too controversial. I want to get Social Security passed in 1931-32. And then Truman tried and nothing ever happened. But finally, took a while, finally, Lyndon Johnson said, Medicare, as long as I can breathe, I'm going to fight for Medicare. And he finally got it. That's Joseph Califano, Jr., author of the new book, Our Damaged Democracy, We the People Must Act. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.